One thing I, I didn't uh, mention in prayer, should have, but keep in prayer uh, probably right about now. We, uh, Julie McNaughton, our youth director, and uh, some of our kids are coming back from a weekend retreat in Leesburg. So, Joe, is that what, five did we go? Five went? Five and my daughter. Six went. So uh, we'll pray for their, uh, for their safe travels. She went up early. That's why he said that. So um, pray for their safe, safe journey home today. And uh, we've had some wonderful celebrations. We've done baptisms today. and We just had some great, great times to celebrate and, and be, the, be the church family. And that's a wonderful thing as we've entered into, entered into um, this, this holy season that we've started uh, with, with Ash Wednesday which begins Lent. In fact, um, there's a lot of practices that go into Lent and, and opportunities for us to, to, we, to use it as a season to, uh, to draw close to God. But we have to think deeply about that and that opportunity. There's a, I read a story about a, a priest that was coming home from Ash Wednesday services just this week. And, and as he was walking home, he still had the sign of the cross in his forehead as we did here in worship. And uh, as he did, a, a guy came up behind him and he put a big knife in his side and he said, give me, give me all the money you've got. And uh, the, the, the priest was panicked, as anybody would be. And, and what's worse is he realized he didn't have any money. I mean, he had nothing. So he said, you know, my son, I, I, don't, I don't have any money to give you. I don't have any money on me. He's like, well, wait, 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 wait. I can give you the only thing I have. And he reached in his pocket and he said, here, take my chocolate bar. And the guy got dejected and he said, Father, I can't take that. I gave up chocolate for Lent. <laughs> so, that's somebody that doesn't quite get the point. We, we do, there are wonderful spiritual practices that people engage in in this season. Uh, that it is a time when, when sometimes many of us choose to give something up for Lent. That's not just a, a Catholic practice, though our Catholic brothers and sisters do that uh, probably in, in a larger scale than Protestants do, but, but, but many do. They, they give up a practice. Maybe it's a, a chocolate. Maybe it's something unhealthy. Maybe it's a, a more personal practice of I know people have tried to give up smoking for Lent or, or watching certain television shows or social media. There's, there's no end to the things that we can personalize in our lives, the, the things that we can look around in our lives and say, hey, this may be something I shouldn't engage in, a practice or behavior I shouldn't, shouldn't be a part of. And so sometimes Lent becomes an opportunity to try to give those things up. But the point of my joke, and believe it or not, there's a point there, is that we need to do it with intentionality. We need, our, our practices are meant to draw us close to God. It is meant to allow God to begin to work in transformative ways in our lives so that when you, when you give something up, those moments that you're, you're tempted, those moments you would normally engage in that practice or behavior become prayerful moments. They become moments in which you're mindful. I am sacrificing something in my life so that I can be attuned and deeper and more connected to the work of God and the Holy Spirit so that God can begin to work. It's not just doing it because it's healthy or good for you. Those are good things too, but it's intentional spiritual practice. So some people will give something up, maybe you have before or are this season. Some people will take on a practice of, of prayer or devotions or journaling, Bible reading. The point is, it's, it's an opportunity that we seek to allow God to work 
to transform, to preparing us a heart to fully embrace the celebration that is Easter and the gift of, of resurrection and life and salvation. So we're into that season. We're into that as we began with, uh, with Ash Wednesday. And I wanted to start this morning a sermon series titled Giving It Up. And what we're going to do is each week uh, in, in this season, each Sunday as we journey toward Easter, we're going to look at things that I believe God's calling us all to, to give up. The, these are not the, the deeply personal things like cigarettes or chocolate or alcohol or, or any number of things, but these are things that I think are universally true to all of us, things in our lives that the Scriptures call us to give up, things in our lives that our walk with God calls us to give up, things like superiority, things like expectations, things like enemies, even life and death. These are all things that our faith calls us to learn in Christ to give up. And today, we're going to start it off by talking about control, learning to give up control. And to do that, I want to turn to a gospel, our gospel reading. There's a couple scriptures we're going to reference today, but I want to start with our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the story of the temptation of Christ. The temptation in the, as he is preparing to begin his public ministry, Jesus goes, as the scriptures tells us, he goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And this is that temptation he would face during those days. So this is what we read, beginning at verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, this is the Psalm, of, Psalm 91 that we talked about, testing and trust. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, again, that we would have ears to hear today, these moments, your word and these words, I pray, that are from your Holy Spirit and that are pleasing to you, that we would be drawn close to Christ and close to each other as we journey together in faith and in the way of, of salvation, which is the way of Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, so let's start with a little congregational participation. I'm going to do this by show of hands. You don't trust me. It's amazing. Every service mumbles when I say that. Here's the question. Here's where we're going to start. How many of you know someone that you would describe as a control freak? 
See, I'm most fascinated by the hands that aren't going up right now. They don't, somebody that is a, a control freak, I know that might not be the politest way to explain it, but, but you all know what I mean. Somebody that just tries to control everything that's going on around them. Somebody who has that, that, that hyper uh, tendency to want to control everything. It is so much fun watching you look at each other when I ask these kind of questions and elbows. And I had one, one wife I saw sitting over here in the second service. She raised her husband's hand. Um, I'm not kidding, not kidding. So I don't know whether she was raising it because he was or whether she was raising it on his behalf for her. I don't know. So, and which is what leads me to the second question. Because most of us have said, well, we know somebody who's a control freak. All right, let's get personal. How many of you would honestly say you are a control I'm not even asking the question. You are a control freak. How many of you have those tendencies? All right. Some good self-reflection. I, I was thinking about this because I, I came across one of those social media Facebook quizzes that float around that said, and that was the title of it, Are You a Control Freak? And so... I took the test. It was very thorough, eight questions. And, uh, and at the end of it, it said I was not a control freak. And I went, of course I'm not a control freak. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and so I, uh, I, started to, uh, I started to look a little deeper at that. I thought, well, you know, let's go a little deeper than an eight question Facebook quiz. And so I, I literally just typed it into the Google search engine, control freak. And the articles populate. And I started to read and I started to look at more serious articles, not necessarily quizzes, but, but those who have those kind of impulses to want to control and, and what that looks like. And, and I, I came across this kind of checklist and I thought it was fascinating. And I want to read it to you as an opportunity to do some deeper self-reflection. Uh, again, no more raising hands. I'm not going to ask it out yourself. But to think about some of these and whether or not they speak to some of your tendencies. And so these are some of the characteristics of people that are, are um, controlling in some way or the other. You believe that if someone would change one or two things about themselves, you'd be happier. So you try to help them change this behavior by pointing that out usually over and over. You micromanage others to make them fit your often unrealistic expectations. You don't believe in imperfection and you don't think anyone else should either. You judge others' behavior as right or wrong and passive-aggressively withhold attention until they fall in line with your expectations. Sitting in silent judgment is a master form of control. You offer constructive criticism as a veiled attempt to advance your own agenda. You change who you are, and this is interesting. Now, this is a pivot from the first few questions. I want you to kind of notice the, the shift a little bit. You change who you are or what you believe so that someone will accept you Instead of just being yourself, you attempt to appeal to others by managing their impression of you. You present worst-case scenarios in an attempt to influence someone away from, their certain, from certain behaviors and towards others. 
you have a hard time with ambiguity and being okay with not knowing something. You intervene on behalf of people trying to explain or dismiss their behaviors to others. And then the last two, and I intentionally made them the last two because I will be self-confessional. These were the two that really got me, okay, that really convicted me. The first of the last two, you always try to win the argument. <laughs> and the last one, you like to have the last word. And I knew right there I was sunk in my attempts to not have any of these controlling impulses because I knew I'm self-aware enough, but if I wasn't self-aware enough, I knew the, the beautiful young lady sitting down here on the front row would self-evaluate for me that I have these tendencies. There is a wonderful dynamic that goes on. You guys don't get to see sometimes between my wife, Tony, and I during these moments, and I can read the body language. And, and I know, I know these are true. These are things that I, I have a tendency to do. But here's what I think. Here's what I, what I think. I think as I read through that list, somewhere, some of those, one at least, if not more, resonated at some level with you. Maybe at different degrees. I'm not saying in, in destructive ways, but some of those tendencies, some of those characteristics, you probably, many of you, if not all of you, at some point have said, yeah, I've done that. I've done, there's three or four that if I'm honest, I go, yeah, you know, I've done that. Because there is, I think, this, this genuine desire in our lives to have control of the circumstances and events around us. We want to have control over the things that are going on in our world. Whether or not we, we recognize the rationality of that, it's, it's our desire. And so our behavior sometimes reflects that desire to have control. And, and we have to begin to, to first honestly recognize the things that we can control and the things that we can't. Because this speaks not just to a spiritual truth, but it speaks to an emotional and a relational health. Recognizing the things you can control and the things you can't. Now, let's start with the things you can control. Because there are things that God has absolutely put under each of our control in our lives. There are things that you control and that I control. And here's a short list of them. You control your thoughts. In fact, the scriptures say, whatever is good, pure, holy, righteous, a virtue, think on these things. Be intentional. You control the things you focus your mind on. You control the words that come out of your mouth. You control your speech. You control your behaviors. You control the, the things that you do, the actions, the work ethic, and you control your reactions to the things that are going on around you. One of my favorite little sayings is, you know, you, we do not control the wind, uh, but we control the setting of the sails for each of us. You control how you respond and how you react to the things. Those are the things, the short list of the things that you control, your words, your thoughts, your actions, your reactions. Okay, now here's the list of what you don't control. And there's only one thing on the list you don't control. And that's everything else. You control words, actions, thoughts. Your words, actions, thoughts. What you don't control is everything else. Now, I'm not saying you don't have influence. 
You certainly have influence on things. I have influence on my children's behavior. Less and less as they're getting older. But, but I have influence, but I don't control that. I have influence on Tony. She has influence on me. There's, there's influence. But ultimately, Tony controls her actions. I control my actions. My kids control their actions. So, so I have to learn to, to understand and to accept this delineation between these two things and to live sometimes in the tension of the things I can control versus the things I want to control. I would like to have a lot more control. It's probably good that I don't because I would control some of you and that may not be healthy for you, but that's, that's the desire. And so, so we learn that and we try to, to raise our young people in that. I cannot tell you the number of conversations I've had with, with Ryan since he's been in college or even with Cassidy, which they're wrestling or struggling with something. And I'll say to, to Ryan, I'll say, Ryan, you've got to let that go. You can't control that. You know, here's what you can do. This is what you control. You can't control their reaction. You can't control this factor. You can't control that factor. And I say that repeatedly to them. And I'll be honest with you, part of the reason I impart that lesson so strongly to my children is because I'm hoping maybe it'll sink into me. Because, because I speak the truth in their lives that very often I need to hear. Because I struggle with that. I struggle with getting worked up sometimes over things that I can't control. Sometimes even in obvious ways. Jill and I were talking about this for weeks before Celebration Sunday. Because one of the stress, we joke about it with pray for good weather. But, but we do, we worry. Well, what's the weather going to be like, right? So we, we were checking weather 10 days out. But what's the point? Now, we can, we can start to think through reactions, but once we chose that day, it was chosen. It was going to rain. It was going to be sunny. It was going to be windy. It was going to be cloudy. It was all beyond. The only thing we knew we didn't have to worry about, it wasn't going to snow. That was it. It was out of our control. Now, we, we knew that. That was an obvious thing, but, but we, we struggle in these ways. We struggle in these relationally and professionally and spiritually because we have this this desire, this human nature within us that wants to control things. And part of what Christ calls us to, part of our faith is to learning to let go. To learning those areas of our lives that we need to let go and learn to not trust us, but to trust God's presence and God's purpose and God's work in our lives. What are the areas of our lives that we need to let go? And in the scriptures, we get a wonderful contradiction or, or conflict, if you will, example, maybe, of, of these two extremes, these two behaviors. The first I didn't read this morning, but it's, it's a story that is familiar to, to many of you because it's one of the first stories of the scriptures. It's found in Genesis 3, and it is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. It's the story of the first sin. It's the story of their disobedience in eating the fruit, the very tree, from the very tree that God told them not to eat from. If you, if you remember just the, the foundation of the story, God gave them everything. Not just what they wanted. gave them everything. I mean, not just what they needed. Everything they wanted. They had one rule. Here's the tree in the garden. Don't eat from this tree. And that's the tree that you can ask yourself this question when you read Genesis 3. Why are you anywhere near that tree? And that's, they find themselves, they're just like children. 
And think about it. You tell kids, don't go over there. And where's the first place they want to go? Wherever it is you just told them not to go. That's Adam and Eve. They're there and they're at that tree. And they do the one thing God told them not to do. And it is a story of disobedience. But at the heart of the disobedience, I believe, is control. I believe it is this, this human nature that says, you can't tell me what to do, even to God, as crazy as that sounds. I remember being down the hall, this was months ago, and a couple kids, a couple of our church kids, brother and sister, were down there playing. And uh, the, the older brother, younger sister, and he starts telling her what to do. Those of you that have older siblings know this happens from time to time. Those of us that are older siblings know that was the benefit of being the older sibling. And so he's telling her what to do. And she gets mad and she stomps her feet. And she looks at him and she says, I don't have to do what you tell me to do. You're not the boss of me. And I remember that. She just declared her independence, her control. And, and we, we, we laugh because we've heard that. We may have said that as kids. We've heard kids say it. You're not the boss of me. The thing is, we don't outgrow that. We do not outgrow that impulse to push back on those factors in our lives that we perceive as controlling us. And sometimes that's really healthy. There are people in your life that will seek to control you. You need to push back on that. There are factors in your life you need to push back on. But the reality, there are places in our lives where we do have to submit to the authority of others. You know, you can sit there all day long when the police officer pulls you over and say, you're not the boss of me, but if you're doing 80 and a 40, guess what's happening? You're getting the ticket, or worse. You don't get to dominate that. You don't get to demand your autonomy in that place. God says to us, there are places that I desire for you to submit to my will and purpose for your life. And that is hard to do. That's hard to do. But God doesn't do it just to be authoritarian. He does it for our well-being. Adam and Eve pushed back against that. They ate that fruit. They got their freedom and that freedom cost them more than they ever could imagine. It cost them paradise. It was an issue of control. Now, back to Matthew 4, which I read from this morning. Jesus in the desert, in his, his time of fasting. One of the most aha, I mean, not aha, one of the most, yeah, duh, okay, duh scriptures is found in Matthew chapter 4, right at the very beginning, the second, second verse. It says this, after fasting 40 days, so Jesus is in the wilderness, has not eaten for 40 days. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? Most of us can't get through a meal skipping without being starved. 40 days, he was hungry. And this is the point, and don't lose this, this is the point that temptation comes. 40 days, vulnerable. That's when Satan shows up. That's when temptation comes. Temptation comes when we're vulnerable. Satan doesn't show up on day one or two of the fast. He shows up on day 40. In our, in our most vulnerable places, that's where that temptation will come. And so Jesus is hungry and he's tired. And Satan shows up and he gives him the threefold um, invitation. Turn stone to bread, because you can do that, Jesus. Or... Hurl yourself off the ledge. Let the angels demonstrate your divinity by catching you. Show that power. Or, or bow down before me and everything you see will be under your dominion. And what Satan does is he tempts him with, with um, provision, with protection, and with power. 
That's a threefold nature of what Satan tempts Jesus with. With provision, so your needs will be met. With protection, so harm will never come to you. Or with power, so that you have dominion, authority, control over everyone you see. And Jesus rebuffs it. Each time you do not test the Lord your God. You do not feed on bread alone. In other words, I will not seek to use my dominion, my authority to control everything, but rather in the midst of need, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hunger, in the midst of fear, I will trust in God. And that becomes the example of his ministry over and over again. When Jesus met these moments of vulnerability or faced moments of vulnerability, he did not try to exert control. He exemplified trust. And he would turn to God over and over and over again. That's what that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It is a prayer of trust. And what we are invited into in faith and in our, in our lives as a whole, because what God calls us to isn't just a spiritual blessing, but it blesses the whole of our lives. You know what? When we let go of trying to control others, our relationships are healthier. I've never seen a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, where one spouse is domineering or controlling the other. They may stay together, but it's not healthy. I've never seen people that are emotionally healthy who are so worked up over all the things in their lives they can't control at work or at school or anything. When, when we don't learn to let go, we carry baggage that God never intended us to carry. And that's true spiritually. And what God calls us to, what Jesus invites us to, is to let go of those things in our lives that we don't need to worry about because we can't control them anyway. And to focus on the things that we can and to walk in faith. That's what faith is. It's trusting God's presence in the midst of those circumstances. Now again, and I say this all the time, and I know some of you are probably tired of hearing it. I'm not saying that if you trust in God, you won't have any hard times. And God will be with you in the midst of that. Jesus had hard times. But he trusted in God rather than seeking to control things that he knew he was not meant to control. My question as we begin Lent together as we talk about things that we need to give up, what do you need to let go of the illusion of control over? What relationships or practices, disciplines, do you need to let go of because you've bought into some sort of illusion that you control them anyway? And in those places where you need to learn to trust God and put your trust in Him just as Jesus did. Put your trust in his strength, in his presence, in the midst of those moments. We all need, in places in our lives, to learn to let go. It is one of the hardest things God calls us to. But it is amazing the blessings we find when we do. I was sitting over here this morning before the first service, preparing, mentally preparing, and all of a sudden, I remembered a poem that you may be familiar with because it's, it's fairly um, familiar to a lot of folks. But I think it, it, it sums up very powerfully the invitation God gives us. And the poem's titled Broken Dreams. And this is how it goes. It says, as children bring their broken toys with tears to us to mend. So I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But instead of leaving him in peace, in peace to work alone, 
I stuck around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last I snatched them back and said, how can you be so slow? My child, he said, what could I do? You never did let go. What do we need to let go of? What do we need to let go of? Give up control and trust in God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, that we would find the faith to let go. Find the faith to to trust in you in the midst of the journeys of life and our relationships and our callings in so many ways to trust in you. There are areas that you do absolutely give us authority and dominion over. Those are our choices and behaviors. So much is beyond our control. Help us to trust in you and let go, to walk in faith, to walk in obedience, and to walk in your strength. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.